Welcome back to another episode of the Man Talks Podcast. My name is Roger Nairn. And I'm Connor Beaton. Um, today we've got an, another uh, very special guest. His name is John Neuenberg. Um, John uh, is a, a life coach and business coach here in Vancouver, um, but he's recently famous for his talk that he gave at uh, TEDx Stanley Park 2015. Um, and that talk was about suicide and depression. Um, Today's conversation is going to be tough, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be deep, and and uh, you know you're going to hear one of the most vulnerable conversations that I can remember um, uh, listening to in a while. But I think it's something very very important that we all need to listen to. Um, Connor, did you want to add anything? We just we just finished it, and it's it's quite emotional and and quite um, striking. Yeah, I think I think the the conversation is is much needed. And, you know, for for all the listeners, just to give you some some context, you know, there there's a lot there's a lot to this to this dialogue. It's a lot more than than just, um, you know, talking about depression and suicide. It's it's, you know, when you're struggling with adversity, what do you do Um, when you are faced with an obstacle that you're not too sure how to over overcome? And, and that can be in many forms. You know, John actually talks about many obstacles that he faced in his life, and, and this was just one of them. It, it, was, it was the biggest one, for sure, um, but he talks about many obstacles and, and how to actually move through them and how to actually work through them. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, really, we're really happy about this episode, really excited for it. And, um, you know, whether or not you're, you're listening from a place of uh, struggling with depression or not, um, even if you're just struggling with something in your life that you know is an obstacle with relationship, with work, whatever that whatever that may be, um, I think that there's huge value in this to to help you work through that adversity. So, without any further ado, uh, we will introduce you to Mr. John Neuenberg. Um, thanks so much for joining us once again for another Man Talks podcast. Uh, today we've got a very, very special guest. Um, a few months ago, I, I was I was perusing the web and I happened upon the um, TEDx Stanley Park website and I got a chance to to watch a video of of this man's talk. Um, John is a, is an award winning business coach who works with business owners to get more profit in life. But the talk that he gave that day um, really touched me, and I think is going to touch you. Um, it's very it's a very important conversation um, for men these days, and that's the topic of depression and suicide. So I would like to welcome John to the show today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah, um, John. I mean, just to kind of start off, can you give us some context? Uh, and some backstory about you know what your journey's actually been, where where you grew up, um, what you did after high school. Like, give us give us some fun facts that you know other people might not know or might not might not know about you or your sure. journey. Um, well, I'm the eldest of eight children. Wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's relevant to the story here because uh, particularly in my circumstance, um, first generation immigrant. Um, you know, my dad made it clear that I was meant to be responsible for my brothers and sisters, and if they were in trouble, I was in trouble. And uh, so that kind of set up a mindset of wanting to teach and coach. And um, so it was kind of a natural evolution for me to become uh, a coach, although there was a, um, it took me until about the age of 45 when I had an epiphany. We were talking about life-changing moments. I had one of those wake up in the middle of the night, literally wake up in the middle of the night, bolt upright, 
with that startling clarity that, you know, at least for me, I don't get very often, um, where I recognized I've always been a coach. Coaching is what I do. It's been, and it started because I was the eldest of eight children. Mm. Yeah, very cool. As a, as a eldest of five, I definitely understand that. Can relate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like embedded into you. Um, and so, for, you know, you said first generation immigrant. Where did your family come from? Holland. Yeah, you know, they. my parents um, grew up largely as teenagers during the war. And yeah. so uh, after the war, it was very difficult in Europe. And, you know, we see that today spread over the newspapers as people yeah. are looking for a better opportunity. And so they left in 53 and came here to Canada, to Manitoba. And, um, you know, in those days, what that meant is they worked with a farmer who was their sponsor for a year and gave that farmer a year's worth of labor. And then they were free to, um, you know, go off and do their own thing. Very cool. And being the, being the eldest of eight eight kids, I mean, that's that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of weight on your shoulders. <laughs> is that? I mean, is that something? I mean, I, I only have a sister. Uh, Connor's got you know four four other siblings. Is that something you recognize very very early on in life that this is you know a, a pretty unique situation, but also a very important sort of role that you play, or is it something that? kind of comes later, not later in life, but as you get a little bit older? You know, you recognized it later, or at least I recognized it later. Um, My dad was very gifted at uh, having us understand we were family, that, you know, we were connected as as brothers and sisters, and that, you know, there was not necessarily a wall, but that we were, you know, meant to, it was always family first. Uh, We did a lot of things uh, together as a family, including... You know, um, we delivered 1,100 flyers uh, three times a week as a, you know, as a family, as the kids would. That's how we, my dad worked at a poultry plant. In Winnipeg, yeah. Uh, My dad worked in a poultry plant, and uh, what that meant for him is he was able to collect the eggs on the day the chickens were arriving. And so we'd often have uh, 90 dozen eggs, literally, that we would clean largely by hand. And then uh, sell door to door, <laughs> thirty cents for one of those two and a half dozen wow. flats. <laughs> so you know, I tell you that these little anecdotes tell you a little bit about the kind of upbringing or the way that the kind of values that that I was taught. And did you have a good relationship with your with your family or with your parents? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, I had a very good relationship with my mom. Uh, we, we were tight and. Um, you know, many in the family would say I was her favorite. <laughs> but the counterpoint of that is I was not my dad's favorite. In fact, just the opposite of that. So, uh, you know, that was part of um, the journey that we're talking about, about right. learning. You know, as a, as a child, we learn coping skills, and um, and those skills serve us well as a child, uh, but don't serve us as well as an adult. And so, you know, part of my story is learning how to cope in different ways than than uh, what I did when I was 10 and 8 and so forth. Right. And it must be tough being in that, you know, leadership position within the family and not having that relationship with the, you know, sort of the elder statesman of, of being the father uh, to, to, to fall back on. And I can, yeah. imagine, I can imagine that's well, difficult. Well, you know, the counterpoint to that, though, is I had a really good relationship with my mom. So, um, you know, we were uh, confidants in, in some ways. And, um, and so whatever I might have missed from... My relationship with my dad, I was kind of offset by the relationship that I had with mom. So you mentioned you mentioned the moment when you were 45, where you where you kind of had the clarity. I'm curious what 
you know, what was life like for you up until that point between high school and there? You know, did you have one main career path? Were you were you doing multiple different things? Like what what was what did you do kind of between between high school and, and there? Um, well, after finishing university, I started as, in retail as a sales guy in a, okay. in a menswear store, Tip Top, yeah. and uh, I was there 17 years. Nice. Uh, started as a sales guy, and um, uh, you know, 17 years later, after living in uh, 10 cities in 12 years, was an executive living uh, with Tip Top living in Toronto. Wow. Um, and it was a good time. Uh, Tip Top was a great company in those days. Um, lots has changed, and so I don't really know it very well anymore. Um, in 91, I wanted to get back to Vancouver. I'd lived in Vancouver. Um, this is now the third time that I've returned to Vancouver. I wanted to get back and uh, got myself headhunted, recruited by the uh, liquor distribution branch, by the BC liquor stores. And I was the head of that for about seven years. You know, we were given a mandate uh, to make the liquor distribution branch a better and better and better retailer. There's a long legacy and a history of why it is what it is and you know we were um, tasked with changing it from kind of a liquor dispenser prescription kind of model you know where you'd have to it wasn't that long ago where you'd have to fill in a chip and give it to a guy who went and got it for you. I think, I think in Ontario you still do don't you? Or, or um, a- there might be in some places um, a lot of that's changed and um, you, you know government has its reasons for wanting to continue um, mainly because of the, you know financially it's important and so, um, and the government wants to make sure that, you know, people are generally satisfied with the service they get. There's a long, you know, we could have a long debate about that, and I won't do that today. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that, that was uh, how I got started with that. And from there, I, I hived off on my own and became uh, basically a retail consultant for, you know, I'd work with clients who, you know, needed help with sales training or recruiting and that kind of thing, and got certified as a coach in '04. And it was subsequent to becoming, it was early in the time of being a coach that I got that epiphany that, um, it, it, you know, coming back to my childhood, uh, they often say that what you do when you're six, seven, eight, nine years old, that you do voluntarily is a very good insight into um, your, your passion, what, what you'd be good at in your career. So one of the anecdotes that stands out for me is that when I was um, 10, 11, 12, 14 um, years, I'd go get my brothers and sisters' library cards. Literally, I'd do this voluntarily. The library was three miles away, which I would do on a bicycle. <clears throat> I'd collect three books per person, age and interest appropriate, <laughs> bring it back home, and uh, and do it again three weeks later, you know, and um, which today is not the same as, but um, has some similarities to what I do as a coach. So, you know, that's my own circumstance where looking back on that, I think, oh, man, that's... That's what I do today. Mm. I, I wanted to be a teacher when I was in um, high school, uh, but the vision of being an institutional teacher with the uh, you know tweed jacket and the elbow patches—that wasn't. <laughs> that isn't what I wanted. You'd to probably do. look great in it, though. That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there were times where I wore that jacket. But, yeah, exactly. But um, you fulfilled that need of the of the jacket wearing yeah, yeah. without I've, the institution. I've got exactly. a need for tweed. I've got a yeah, need yeah. for tweed. Yeah. Um, in '83, uh, while working for Tip Top, we were taught something called the Socratic method of leadership. And Socrates said that we don't really teach something to someone. What we do is help them figure it out for themselves. And that was a leadership style we were taught and expected to do. And it's very much like coaching in that you're, you're, you'd like 
the person you're working with to arrive at their own answer, their own conclusion, or their own strategy, because the notion is that if they, if it's theirs, they're more likely to own it and to want to execute it, and um, and so you know that's basically the style of leadership management, teaching, coaching that I've been doing, and it's one of the pivotal. You know, we were talking about you know moments in our lives. That's one of the ones that was a pivot for me, and uh, one that I really embraced and you know uh, um, resonated with me, and so I grabbed on. Hmm. So I mean, coaching is a uh, you know it's it's become a very like popular mainstream um not only word but career path for a lot of people and you know some people do it very well some people you know get the certifications much like yourself and some people you know really put a lot of time and energy into doing it properly and there's also a lot of other people out there that 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 don't do that and they just kind of slap the label on of i'm a coach and they've got they get somebody to build them a wordpress website and all of a sudden they're, they're coaching people on, on some area that they feel they can, they can lead people in. Um, and I'm, I'm always very curious as to, you know, like what, first off, why are people really drawn to it? Because it seems like there's, there's this huge, I think ever since, like, you know, Tony Robbins coined the, co- the, the term coach and, and kind of said, I'm, you know, I'm a coach and then created a program for coaches. It really sparked this big, this sort of like big movement around North America. And I'm curious as to, you know, why do you think psychologically people are drawn to it? Is it, is it very similar to your story? And then secondly, um, you know, for the people that are out there that are maybe thinking about going into coaching or are just starting out or are struggling or, or are being successful, like what are some of the things that, that really make a great coach? Because mm-hmm. you've been doing this now for a little over 10 years, I think. That's right. And, um, you know, it's from, from what I've seen and heard and, and you know, I chatted with a couple of people that you've actually worked with because uh, I like to do research. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you did. Yeah. Um, you know, it sounds like you're, you're very good at what you do. So maybe just give us some insight into, into why you think people do it and then, you know, what makes a very successful coach. Yeah. <clears throat> Coaching by nature is a desire to teach, a desire to um, to subordinate your own rewards in uh, recognizing the rewards of another person. And uh, so the best coaches in the world are willing to subordinate their own um, outcomes. Um, And there's, um, you know, a a way that I think about it is abundance. You know, if you have abundance mentality, I'm my, uh, or Zig Ziglar has a wonderful way of saying it. You can get everything you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want in life. And, and so that for me is coaching, right? Mm-hmm. Let me help you achieve what you want. This is the way that I get my satisfaction too, by the way. Um, it's a greater reward to me, the satisfaction, than the money. The money's nice, of course, and it's necessary, and it's a scorecard and all those things. But that's not really the reason I do it. Um, so I think coaches are people that are born to be teachers and love the notion of, of uh, wanting others to perform. Um, I, I kind of learned a lesson once when I was golfing with my brother. If you go golfing with me, you got to watch out because despite my best efforts, I'll start coaching. You know? <laughs> I'm a pretty good golfer, but not, you know, not a, anywhere like a pro. But nevertheless, I've got an opinion. Or if you go skiing with me, and my brother made it clear to me, and he was very nice when he said, look at um, – 
thanks, but this isn't really welcome at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Oh, maybe yeah. I should learn something from that. Yeah. Totally. Uh, so I'm better now at asking permission. My wife says the same thing to me sometimes, too. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. You know, just, I just really don't want your opinion right now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's best to pay attention but at I think that I, moment, too. I, I also, you know, I, I was also doing some, some research on you, and, and I saw a quote on, on your site that you, you know, you teach a man to fish. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, there's something to be said for handing over that, you know, that, um, that knowledge and, 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 you know, helping people along, along the way and, and, and giving them that, uh, you know, the empowerment to, to do, to do it on their own. Yeah. That, that is a really good reference that consultants do the fishing for you and coaching is about teaching you how to fish. You know, I want to come back to what you talked about a bit earlier, Connor, that, um, coaching is, um, it, it is a profession now. Uh, there are a lot of people that do it who are very professional and very gifted at it. Um, but at the same time, it's attracted a lot of people and it's become kind of a fad. And, and you're right, there are people that kind of hang out a shingle and, and you know, you wonder just if they're qualified at all. Um, it my view, we're, you know, it's a progression. It's a relatively new uh, profession. But we're going to someday get to a place where we'll have an authorizing authority um, body like the lawyers do in accountants and engineers where there's a professional arm's length um, association who's responsible for regardless of where you got your training you, as a lawyer you can get you know you can go to school on a bunch of different places but you still got to do articles you still got to pass the bar right. and um, I think the coaching profession is is in a place where that would be a healthy thing for us to do um, and I for one would feel better about calling myself a coach to be honest with you if I could think of another way to describe what I do I would uh, because it's become um, hard to understand or you know the, the word coach has a very broad and very unspecific uh, meaning nowadays and I, I think maybe that's what you were thinking about when you're talking yeah about. yeah absolutely and you know the reason why I brought up is because I think you know in, in the, especially in the personal development realm there's a lot of coach can almost it can sometimes have a negative connotation depending on you know the the area in which the person is is specializing in yeah. right and um you know, so maybe give us a quick snapshot into the type of work that you do, for just for our listeners' sake, just to, so that they understand you know, the, the type of work that you do with people. Yeah. The kind of clients that I work best with are uh, either solopreneurs who have a professional practice, uh, and I have a pretty broad definition of that. Uh, so typically we think of lawyers and, and uh, accountants and engineers, uh, but I also think of health practitioners, physiotherapists, uh, traditional Chinese medicine, that kind of thing. And I, you know, my definition is as broad as including people who have uh, realtors and mortgage brokers and that kind of thing. So they have a practice. They provide a service, professional service. So that's one style of client. The other one is uh, typically uh, someone who's operating some form of bricks and mortar. Um, so retail, of course, uh, but lots of manufacturing plants, that kind of thing. Where um, so typically what happens is people get to a place where they – or there's a, let me start that again and tell you a, a quite a well-known story that Sarah loved baking cherry pie. She loved it so much that she thought she'd open a bakery. She opened the bakery to discover that just because she was good at baking cherry pies didn't mean that she was good at running the business called the bakery. And so that's often what happens to people. They start a business. They are very good, very – you know, um, passionate about what they do, and then they learn that, oh, my, just because I'm good at 
you know, um, retail or good at manufacturing doesn't mean that I know how to run the business. And so that's the part I help them with. I often say I, I can't help you be a better lawyer, but I'll help you have a better law practice. Yeah, it's, that's, a, that's a really good distinction. Like, a, you know, quite a few friends of mine run their own businesses or they're starting up their own business. And a perfect example, I'll leave his name out of it, but he started up a clothing a clothing business. And, and it's a very... I mean, his story is very heartfelt, and the reason why he started it up is is very heartfelt, you know. And he's he's doing it uh, because, you know, his his his, his mom had a, a double stroke, and um, he wanted to find a way to actually give back to mm. to his mom, and and to the to the cause. And so she's still around, but she's going through rehab. Mm. And so he, she would always say this. She always had this saying, um, which I won't say, unfortunately, because it'll give away who I'm talking about to a lot of the listeners. Um, but she always had this saying, and so he took the saying and made it into a clothing line. Awesome. And the whole intention is that a percentage of the of all the profit is going to go back to Heart and Stroke Foundation. Sure. And he's really he's really struggled in the last several months to really get things up and running. Um, despite the the passion, because there's certain areas that he just feels completely lost in, yeah. and you know there, there's there's some he's got the passion, he's got the vision, he's got the idea, but actually getting everything in order is really struggling for him. And, and the first thing that I asked him was, "Do you have a coach? Do you have a mentor? Do you have somebody to guide you and and really hold you accountable to the things that you want to do, but also give you a different perspective?" Yeah. And he was like, "Nope, I, I haven't even I haven't even thought of it yet." Yeah. And I said, you know, it may be the best investment that you make, um, as long as it's the right person. Yeah. So, fit makes a difference for sure. Um, you know, people like your friend can be successful, and they likely will be because of their, you know, perseverance and their drive and so forth. But as I sometimes say, experience is an expensive teacher, and it takes time. Yeah. And if you want to leapfrog some of that learning time or accelerate through it, then having a mentor or a coach, someone who has you know, the specific experience and skills in the areas you don't is going to help you get there faster. Yeah. You're going to get there, but do you want to pay the price of experience or do you want to leapfrog through that and, and get ahead? So it is an investment for sure. Um, you know, people often think about the investment in financial terms, and um, I think that's actually the wrong emphasis because um, if you're willing to guarantee your commitment to the program to, uh, to the time it takes, to the effort it takes, then I can guarantee the result. Uh, financially. And so the bigger commitment that you have to make is the commitment to actually wanting to achieve and go through the difficult learning and, you know, committing uh, to the committing to the, to the commitment, yeah. committing. Exactly. Yeah. So commit to the time, to the process and the money takes care of itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So just a very, I mean, awesome. That's, that's all really great advice um, to kind of switch gears um, because, you know, one of the reasons why, um, so for the for the listeners, actually, as we're recording this, John's going to be speaking uh, at the Man Talks event that we're hosting tonight at Hootsuite. Um, and you know, one of the main reasons why we why we definitely wanted you to come and talk and, and share your journey is is because of the the mental health sort of portion of it. And um, you know, you, you speak about um, depression and, and and suicide, and and it's very powerful. And it's and it's a topic that I think a lot of men really want to hear they want they want to have that conversation um but they don't necessarily know <clears throat> or have the space in order to go and hear it mm-hmm. um so i was hoping that maybe we could kind of dive into that if, if you're okay with it i know it's it's one of those it's one of those subjects um that that can kind of be challenging and tough but i just kind of can you give us uh, some insight into sort of what that journey looked like leading up into uh into your experience and and maybe just tell us 
tell us, you know, a little bit about what happened and give us some insight. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, well, um, as I say in the talk, if you're kind of come out tonight, on May 25th, 2011, I attempted suicide, um, which was the outcome of a period of depression. Um, when, uh, for me, my experience of depression was um, it felt like a tunnel, and it felt like the tunnel was ever getting narrower and narrower. And the result of that was I felt like I had fewer and fewer options. In fact, at, at the end of the day, it feels like you only have one option. In hindsight, you know, clearly I get that that was um, uh, really corrosive thinking. Thinking wasn't very healthy thinking, but that's what depression does. It, or at least it did for me. That it took me down this path. It's you know the vicious circle where it, it continues to spiral in a downward fashion, and and. Um, you know, I was quite methodical about it. You know, I, I really had my wits about me in doing it, and yet, uh, you know, what is how does what has to happen to a guy's judgment or to the way he's thinking that this seems like a reasonable thing to do? Uh, and that's what I did. What do you mean by you were methodical? Oh, I was carefully planned out how and when, and you know, the process, and um, um, you know, I, I attempted to hang myself, and so you know, I went shopping for rope and. Can you believe that this one wasn't good enough? And I didn't like that one. And I eventually went to a high-end, you know, climbing store to get just the right material. Can you, you know, like how does that work? Where you, that's the level that you were thinking at. And you know, spent quite a bit of time um, scouting for spots and locations and uh, thinking about it. So it's a process called ideation. And so for me, that was about a month long then. That uh, and so I'm, I was struck by the uh, paradox of that. That on one hand, my judgment was, you know, um, so negatively affected, and on the other hand, I could make choices like that. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. I'm. You know. I'm. I thank. First yeah. off, thank you for just Absolutely. sharing that. You know, that takes a lot. A lot of courage. Leading up into that, you know. Can we kind of? I think it would probably be good to to not separate the sort of depression and, and the suicide, but to just talk about one and then talk about the other. And you know, uh, can you give us some insight into, you know, when do you feel like the depression kind of started? Was there a catalyst for it? Did it just kind of happen through you know your mental processes, or was it something that was just brought on? And then what was it like on a day to day basis to to kind of have to deal with that and, and go out and function in the world? You know, that's another part of the paradox is that in the world I felt like I was pretty high functioning, right? That um, even my spouse, in hindsight, you know, felt the vibe but couldn't name and wouldn't have recognized that <clears throat> I was ex experiencing depression because on one hand you got to show up and you have a game face and, and you present to the world. And I lived in this kind of, you know, I'm going to call it a secret life where um, increasingly I was isolating from, from the world and increasingly in my own head and, um, and you know, this tunnel kind of thing. Um, in hindsight, you know, with the benefit of some help, I've been able to recognize that there's been several stages, periods in my life uh, where I experienced depression but didn't recognize it and, you know, didn't have the insight and, and times were different and... Um, and so I didn't get this, the help or the support that I needed at that time. Um, there's an incident when I was about 15 or 16 that really stands out for me where I went to, uh, I was ex um, experiencing um, shortness of breath and, com and compression and pain in my chest and stuff. And 
I, I was sent to, you know, the family doctor, and that was quite an adventure in those days because it was a long journey by bus and, you know, a long walk, and we lived on the outskirts of the city. And um, I got I had a full exam by the doctor, and, and then I was directed to, you know, get, get dressed and see me in my office. And, and here I had this physical condition that I was expressing, and he started asking me about how's life. <laughs> How's your life? What's going on? What does that have to do with it? Exactly, yeah. you know, and that, and he prescribed some medication of some kind, and I went home and never made the connection that oh, that's what stress feels like. That's what anxiety. You know, it's normal kinds of things that we might have all experienced when we we're fourteen, fifteen, teenagers, right? And um, and so uh, looking back, and with the benefit, as I say, the benefit of some help, um, I was able to kind of piece together different stages of my life where I experienced uh, depression um, you know <clears throat> while I was feeling depressed I was there's also another kind of disconnect between um, what you're doing and what you know you ought to be doing um, I could recognize what I needed to be doing in order to um, you know turn things around or be healthy and that kind of thing and yet it's uh, so debilitating in some way that it undermines your very capability of doing it. And so um, one of the things that's interesting is that uh, mental disease often shows up as behavioral issues. And so that's why we, you know, earlier, many times people think of it as a character flaw because the, the manifestation is is in behavioral issues, but the underlying cause of it is a, is a physical or a mental or a, a medical condition, a clinical condition, right? <clears throat> and so that's why... As a society, we have such a hard time figuring out what is this thing called depression because it just looks like you're, you know, effing up. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it, it, yeah. you know what you're saying is really resonating with me because um, and, and I've never I've never really talked too openly about this, but I I went through periods of of depression my, myself when I was in university, um, and there would be days where I wouldn't get out of bed and. There would be days where I would get out of bed and I'd put on my, you know, my regular social face and go to class and fully function and have a job and have girlfriends and have a life. And but deep down inside, I had this I, I called it the, the cloud. I know, you know, Winston Churchill called it the black. What do you call it? The black dog or something mm. like that. Yeah. And it's just this this constant um, sp- you know, it's like being in a sandstorm. You know, you can you can walk, you can keep walking forward, but you just don't really know where you're going and 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 what's lying ahead. And I felt so um, stuck. But it is literally, it, it feels like a physical ailment at times. It feels like, you know, your body just doesn't want to doesn't want to move, doesn't want to think, doesn't want to deal with life. And and uh, I, I think- sometimes use the. Um- the picture, I don't know if you've seen this one, of Gulliver. And uh, he's lying flat on his back in a meadow, and all the Lilliputians are yeah. taking rope and driving stakes in the ground and right. compressing them, you know, kind of holding them back. And that's what it felt like for me is that, you know, here I was this, you know, uh, Gulliver is very large compared to the Lilliputians, and yet nevertheless the, all of these nagging, you know, you're thinking about nibbling, getting nibbled to death, right? That That's right. what it... It, it's minor 
when you try to explain it to someone, it doesn't seem as um, oppressive and as um, significant as what it feels like when you're actually experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and I think you know, being being in university and 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 I was in a fraternity at the time, and and you know, I'm supposed to be this social, active guy who's going to the gym and and hitting the bars and all that sort of stuff. And here I was and not wanting to get out of bed. And, and the first reaction from people that don't know what you're going through is, oh, fuck, this guy's lazy. This guy's just, <laughs> this guy's so lazy, which doesn't necessarily help things either because no. you start thinking to yourself, well, maybe that is all it is. Maybe it is just yeah. laziness, but I can't get out of it. My, my wheels are spinning and you it's know, just this, this, yeah, this. That's exactly right. That's, that's the behavioral issue is that that's what it looks like to someone else is that what's the matter with you? You know, you're just... You're not doing anything. You're staying in bed. And, and um, there must be something about university because my first uh, significant episode was while I was in university as well. So I can relate to what you're describing, that experience. I think there's, you know, there's, there's also a lot going on uh, in your life at that time. Sure. And there's a lot of you know, big decisions that need to be made. And, and I think well, you know, one of the things that was exacerbating my, my depression was that I didn't, I didn't necessarily have a plan for my life. I was I was going to school. I knew that I was a university student and that I had all these sort of pressures and, and expectations of me, but I didn't know uh, where I was going, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to be, and I felt like, uh, you know, a bit of a, a no-man's land within myself. Um, Boy, that's a very good uh, description of the way I felt as well. You know, uh, I was there because I expected it and others expected it of me. Because it's just, that's what you do. You go to university. Exactly. You, you know, you, you go to university and you, you do something amazing and you become something amazing. And, and, and that's just part of the plan. You get, a, you get your, you know, your, your piece of paper and you're off to get a job and then you get a family. And, you know, for me, it, I really did feel like I was in a vacuum, right? Mm-hmm. Where you, you, there's no context. You're there, but you don't really know what. what um, what you're there for, what what you're trying to, and so that notion of, I'm here, but I don't know what this is for, where I'm going, and why it matters, all of that um, leads you to a place where you can't. There's such a disconnect between what I'm doing and and what I'm feeling that it leaves you um, stuck, basically. Do you, Do you have any insight to me? You know, I'm sure I'm I'm positive actually that that some of our listeners out there are probably experiencing a very similar thing or, you know, maybe they've been questioning, um, maybe they've been questioning, is this just laziness? Am I just not motivated mm-hmm. or am I, is there actually maybe something else going on? Cause I think a lot of, a lot of people don't want to admit on some degree, whether it's to themselves or to other people that there is a certain level of, of, of maybe depression there or that there's something else actually going on other than, Oh, I'm just tired or I'm just not motivated or these things just don't inspire me. Right. So, do you, do you have any advice for the for the people that are listening that are maybe on on the the, the proverbial fence yeah. of is is this something that is potentially uh, um, you know you know mental illness or, or depression or is this something a little bit more serious than just laziness? You know um, the elephant in the room is an expression we all use to talk about something that we ought to be talking about but we don't and. Um, and so in some ways I think of my TED Talk as outing myself. Mm. We typically use that phrase in a different context, um, uh, but I use it deliberately in this context because uh, most of the power of depression lies in the fact that we don't talk about it, we don't openly address it, we're, we're afraid. Um, 
and so it exacerbates itself. You know, that's the paradox. That's the problem with it is that you start heading down this road of the tunnel. Uh, yeah. Whereas I could have, in hindsight, with with some help or a different decision on my part, could have uh, easily avoided a, lo- a very difficult time. Right? Well, I say easily. I mean, it, it could have changed if I would have gotten help and yeah. um, and been more uh, open to expressing. Um, it's hard to do that uh, for all of us. Uh, in the in the context of being male, it's hard to do that because um, you know we're expected to be the Marlboro man or John Wayne and yeah. be tough. And you were talking about university, and you have a role and a, a, a way that you present yourself to the world. And uh, and talking about um, depression or uh, being vulnerable, um, you know, at least when I was growing up, was not something that you ever considered doing. And it was, you know, there was there's a as men, we're very good at, at um, speaking in code, right? That's Mas- masking. Masking, yeah. exactly. Yeah, compartmentalizing. Yeah. You hurt yourself in the field, you, you slap a bandage on it, and you get back out there. You know, it's, you yeah. know if, 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 you're, if you're vulnerable, you're weak, and if you're weak, you're no good to me. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, that may be true in the physical, you know, when it comes to sports and that kind of thing, but um, uh, when it comes to emotions and, and uh, depression and... Uh, spirituality and that kind of thing, um, it can take us to a place that's very unhealthy. And um, and so against all of our instincts and all of our conditioning, um, we have to do the thing. We should do the thing. We, we're best if we do the thing of opening up and, and um, expressing. And so... You know, my purpose in this is because, I'm, you know, as I said earlier, I'm a teacher and I have this experience and, and want to share by instinct anyway that that's the thing that's um, compelling me to go forward. And once you make the decision to, you know, out yourself, then there is no um, – you're just – it's there. And I've got something – I don't know if it's a gift, but I have something that I want to share. And, and if others – if there's one or two or other people that get a little bit of benefit out of that, then – that would, you know, I'd feel good about that. That would be satisfying. I think, though, you know, call it, you know, saying that you you, you outed yourself is is such an interesting way of, of looking at it because, um, you know, as somebody who has you know suffered with this before myself, it is such a lonely place. It is such a lonely disease, um, and it's not until you open yourself up and 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 tell the world in a way, uh, but even also admitting it yourself uh, that it becomes. Um, something that you can get a get a handle on. It's, yeah, it's, the first admission is the hardest, and that's the, the uh, personal admission. Yeah, and, uh, it, 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 and it, it's interesting when I when I was suffering with it, it wasn't until I found a, a book that I read, and it was called Darkness Visible. Oh, and it was by um, an, an old author, William Stryon, and okay, it's his memoirs of of his depression mm. and his descriptions of the disease are so incredibly mm. um, detailed and, and it wasn't until I read this I thought to myself this is me this mm. is what I'm going through and I just wanted to read a, a quote from it because I think it kind of sums up this element of, of loneliness and, and you're, you know he says that um, a phenomenon that a number of people have noted while in depression uh, well in deep depression is a sense of being accompanied by a second self a wraith-like observer who, not sharing the dementia of his double, is able to watch with dispassionate curiosity as his companion struggles against the oncoming disaster or decides to embrace it. There's a theatrical quality about all of this, and during the next several days as I went about stolidly preparing for extinction, I couldn't shake off a sense of melodrama. 
a melodrama in which I, the victim-to-be of self-murder, was both the solitary actor and lone member of the audience. Wow. That is, um, really resonates for me. I can really um, identify with what he's describing because that's what it feels like. And, and, you know, sort of switching towards that element of, of you know, your, your thoughts around suicide and, and whatnot, I'm curious... Because I think it is such a curious topic in a way. It's 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 similar to death in that we don't really yeah. talk too much about it. And I feel like there. And one of the reasons that we wanted you to have you on the show is to just kind of open the kimono in a way and just let's just have a conversation <laughs> about it. But what is that point where you say to yourself, "It is so bad that I just can't do this anymore"? Well, you feel like you run out of options, right? Out of choices, and um, um, and. Uh, you know, you get to a place where you think this is the best choice. This is the only choice. It's the best choice. And uh, is it the best choice for you, or is it the best choice for everybody? Uh, some people express that that wasn't the case for me. It was the best choice for me, and in some way, I recognize that it would, um, you know, be impactful for others, hurtful for others. And you know, I did some things, wrote some letters, and you know, d- uh, did what I could to help. Um, people in my life um, as a kind of um, gesture towards that, but it, this is entirely for me a personal choice. It wasn't, you know, you do hear of, of some people who feel like suicide is a relief for everybody, and I don't, um, I didn't have that opinion, and I don't think generally that that's true. They they say that um, the Center for Disease Control has estimated that between six and thirty-two people are affected directly by uh, by a suicide. So there's, you know, there's uh, survivors of suicide, six to thirty-two people, wow. and um, at any given time, uh, studies have shown that uh, in North America, ten percent of the population personally knows someone who, in the last twelve months, has died by suicide. And so it's this hidden thing, you know. It's it's much more common than we think. Uh, as I say in the talk in America, there are 16,000 murders and 40,000 suicides a year. And, you know, we wouldn't, if you were to ask the average person in the street, if we were to do an interview, I, I doubt that one in ten would, would get anywhere near to that um, understanding. They're in the uh, suicide prevention, you know, people that are concerned with suicide prevention, there's a, there's a uh, train of thought that it's not wise, it's unhealthy to talk about suicide, to, um, to speak openly about how it happens, the, the way, the methodology of how we, uh, it happens. And, it's, uh, and the fear is that the more we talk about it, the more we make it accessible to people or the more that we kind of lower the, the um, uh, what am I trying to say, lower the resistance to conducting suicide. And it has to do with a study that was done in Switzerland where there was a circumstance where someone died by suicide by jumping in front of a train. And so for several years after that, um, there was many, many episodes of people who died that way. Uh, but over the longer term, what uh, studies have shown is that the actual number, the total number of suicides didn't increase, but what happened is the way the methodology changed. So right. it, it looked more... Visible. It looked like, you know, um, and so because it got a lot of press of attention, and in fact, they're in the press there's a code, the journalism code, that they don't talk about um, out of this fear that that uh, by talking about suicide and its methodology that in some way or another we enable others to 
to uh, act on their own ideas of of suicide. And in in my view, anytime we closet anything, uh, it doesn't lead to a healthy outcome. And so, you know, that's just my instincts and my own intuition. And there's probably lots of studies that might contraindicate that, but. Um, I know that anytime you name the elephant, get the elephant out in the room, in that instant, the power of the elephant diminishes. And so, um, you know, talking about suicide and being open about it, I think is the most powerful thing that we can do to um, lessen the impact of depression and suicide. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think in, especially for, for men, you know, we've, what we've, what we try and teach kids, young boys growing up, is a sense of emotional resilience, right? And and we we try and teach them to be to be strong, to be tough, to um, you know to understand their emotions to a certain degree, but but be able to almost put them aside so that they can carry on with their task. And it's odd because what we try and teach is most emotional resilience, but what we end up teaching is actually emotional suppression. Exactly. And and so many. So many young boys, so many teenagers, so many uh, young men are actually led down the path of just not fully understanding the emotions that are coming up for them, then not fully being able to express the emotions that are coming up for them. And then that just leads to, well, if I don't know how to express them, I'm not going to at all. But those those feelings or emotions are still there. And so they end up just suppressing them, right? And it turns into this, this you know, almost sort of... Um, beast or you know yeah you you talked about dark cloud that's within them you know and and that ends up leading them down the separate path and i think for guys especially like you you know there's there's a lot of stats out there about men versus women that struggle with depression but you know i in in kind of researching um putting together a, a talk for for men on masculinity i stumbled across this this um research around suicide in canada and, you know, on average, there's there's like 4,000 people a year that, that commit suicide in Canada, which was, A, it was, it was higher than I ever imagined. And B, the, the shocking fact was that three out of four of them are men. Mm-hmm. And that blew me away. Mm-hmm. That, that just like, I, I mean, I figured going into it and being sort of, um, you know, illiterate to it, I thought for sure it'd be 50-50. Yeah. You know, I, I thought that it would probably just be on, on both sides. Um, but men are more likely. And do you, do you think, having gone through this, that it's mostly because they're less likely to talk about it? I think the stats are that the attempts are about equal yeah. between men and women, but men are generally more successful. Yes. Um, they, 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 you know, they're successful or they actually com- die by suicide. Yeah. We are conflicted as men, aren't we? We... On one hand, what we prize in in society and athletes and um, endeavors as being an entrepreneur is determination and grit and competitiveness and the I'm going to succeed at all odds kind of motto. And that often means that we're uh, suppressing a lot of um, physical pain as well as emotional pain. You, you know, um, all you have to do is watch football on any given Sunday and see, you know, a bunch of athletes going at each other and about as gladiatorial style as you can imagine and we we treasure you know it's the number one sport in america um and so we watch and admire that and and want to you know teach our children and teach men to be that way and and um 
uh, and what contraindicates that is that we then say, well, you don't get to express vulnerability because that goes against the grain of of uh, demonstrating competitive fire. And, and you know, we, we honor it in uh, war movies. The heroes of war movies are often people that have, you know, overcome great odds and, and persevered at, uh, in oppressive kind of conditions. And so it's a conflict for sure. It's a hard, hard time. You know, there's a, there's a, for me, a breakthrough happened when we were talking about books earlier. Um, uh, there's a TED Talk by a woman named Brenny Brown, who's um, a university professor, wrote uh, several books on the subject. Her TED Talk's well worth seeking and looking. Uh, and she talks about the power of vulnerability. She's very uh, entertaining as a speaker, so it's, you know, uh, it's fun to listen to her. Uh, but it was the result of that particular TED Talk that I made a pivot in my life and decided, you know what, I am going to be open and willing to to express and be confident in that and let the outcome of that be whatever it is. And so if there's people out there wondering, should should I become vulnerable, what's the what's the consequence of being vulnerable, let me point you in the direction of that talk and, and see if it isn't persuasive for you too. How do I ask this question? Um, be 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 yeah. be plain. Be yeah, okay. How did? Why didn't you kill yourself? What happened? Um, I jumped. I had a rope around my neck, and uh, um, um, the hangman's noose unraveled, and so as a result, I got um, you know rope burn scars today, and um, I was unconscious for um, a second or two. There was a, you know, a gap in time where I don't remember, but I, I then woke up on the, uh, floor of the forest and, um, uh, exhausted mentally. And I uh, had this, um, you know, massive rope burn and I was in a place where I just couldn't fathom, um, making another hangman's noose and putting it around my, you know, burning neck, neck that was killing me. Plus, emotionally, I you know just didn't have the reserves or the capacity, so I, um, you know, got back in my car and drove home. <laughs> yeah. And and did you? Uh, how did you say something? Uh, what, what I mean? How did, what occurred? What was that like? How you just yeah, walked into the house weird. and hugged your wife and? Well, uh, we're or, having. Or, or, or was this a, a you know a, you know was this the pivotal moment that turned your life around? Uh, well, it definitely was a pivotal moment. Um, my Jennifer, my spouse, um, noticed, you know, my neck and what asked me what happened. And I made up a story about getting. She knew that I went for a hike that day, and so I made a story about getting hit by a branch. But she was skeptical about that, so she stood up and walked around the bar stool that I was sitting on and inspected my neck. And you know, she um, she didn't say anything, but it was obvious it was plain. And um, she went out to walk the dog, ostensibly, but in fact phoned uh, a brother of mine, which I was very angry at her for, you know, disclosing, and I, I wouldn't, I, I was embarrassed about it. Uh, but it turned out to be the very best, best, best thing she could have done, um, because um, as I have five brothers, and two of them were uh, instrumental. That uh, you know, I really, literally owe my life to those three. To um, it's an emotional thing for me, of yeah. course. Um, and so as a result I got help Um, uh, part of the story is three months later I I had a liver condition I had a a liter of liquid in my um, in my liver you know um, infected fluid 
And as a result, I got admitted into hospital. And while I was in hospital, the story emerged, and I was given psychiatric care. And so uh, that's part of the the um, the the uh, odd story that <clears throat> I didn't go to the hospital for my mental condition, but I went to the hospital because I had a physical condition. And um, it was only then that I, you know, the mental condition got disclosed or, or got treated. And um, so that was part of the story. And my brother uh, also in, um, made it possible for me to get um, therapeutic care. And um, and so that, although I'd had therapy at other points in my life, this was much more, um, um, much more vulnerable because this was the first time that depression, you know, that I spoke about it, and and uh, the facts of the my situation became more evident. All right, uh, Man Talks community. So we just wanted to take a minute to tell you about something that's really exciting. It's it's something that you know the entire team has been working on for quite a while. And it's something that the Mantox community has actually been asking for. Uh, you know, we put on monthly events and we get, you know, 150, 175 people out every month. And the community has really been asking for a full one-day event and for us to bring in some some great speakers and to, to host a big event. So that's what we've done. Um, we've, we've pulled together some pretty incredible speakers. And we have an event coming up on November 7th at the Vancouver Convention Center. So just to give you a quick idea uh, of who's coming to speak, we have uh, Brian Scrone, who is the founder of uh, Board Meetings. And he's going to be flying up from California to come and talk. He's spoken at Harvard and the Pentagon, which is pretty pretty incredible. Some top secret stuff probably happened there. Uh, we've got Philip McKernan, which if you know of Philip McKernan, he's a very powerful speaker. Uh, he's spoken on stage with the likes of you know Richard Branson and the Dalai Lama and some other crazy, crazy people around the world. Um, we've got Daryl Kotke, the CEO of Kitten Ace. Uh, Daryl was fortunate enough to be the sixth employee at Lululemon and work his way up and is now founded uh, Chip Wilson's new company, which is absolutely incredible. Um, we also have Sachin Raha, who is the founder of Warrior Sage. We have uh, Jay Demerit, who is the ex-captain of the White Caps. And we have Brian Scudamore, who is the founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. So we have some absolutely, absolutely amazing speakers, and we've worked really, really hard to, to bring you a, just a kick-ass quality event. So we really hope that you'll check it out again. It's called the Man Talks Intensive, and that is going to be November 7th at the Vancouver Convention Center. So for more details, just check out the uh, Man Talks website. And, uh, but, Connor, that, but Connor, yeah, you don't even need to go to the site right now and get tickets because we have a chance for you to win tickets to the event itself. Oh, you're right. Yeah. All right. you need to do is... Post something that you think represents a modern man on social media. Tag three friends that you think are kicking ass and hashtag it man it forward for a chance to win two tickets to the Mad Talks intensive event on November, on November 7th in Vancouver. Like Connor said, full details can be found at mantalks.com. All you need to do is post a picture, a quote, a video, just something that you think represents a modern man. Don't forget to tag three of your friends that you think are kicking ass, really, really showing what it means to be a modern man, and hashtag it, man it forward for your chance to win two tickets to the Man Talk Intensive event. Very cool. Awesome. I love it. Man, man it forward, my friends. Man it forward. <laughs> man it forward. Let's get back to somebody who's definitely manning forward. It sounds like you were um, 
around a lot of people that loved you and and came to your your support. Um, well, I talked about family and and um, you know that there would be no um, second thought about if one of us was in trouble, then you know there was no questions asked. We'd, what do you need? What can we do? Right. But it also lends itself to that idea of, of coming out in the open and, and having that become, for sure. You know, become. Uh, you know, become come be, you know having that become uh, visible to those people around you so they can help you. Um, I guess you know I'm going to go under the assumption that probably one of our listeners out there is you know either suffering from depression or potentially could even be thinking about you know killing themselves. Um, what would you say to to uh, that person um, coming coming from yourself? And then I guess also. Um, if you're the loved one or, or friend or family, someone, somebody who's come in contact with somebody who is obviously seriously suffering, um, what are the steps that they can take? Uh, be proactive. <clears throat> take uh, initiative. Um, there's is, there, is there a fear of upsetting that person? or, or um, The person is upset. Yeah, I mean, But, I mean, are you... Um, Enabling? Is there fear that, that trying to help them is, is only going to make things worse because they're going to now hate you, or, or is there some sort of repercussion involved? There's um, a way of asking the question that is um, um, gifted enough that it can work. And so if you see someone who's suffering, the way that you might ask the question is people who are experiencing what you're experiencing sometimes think about suicide. Is that something that's happening for you? And so it opens the door in a really gentle way and a non-judging kind of way uh, to open the door to the discussion. And that person may, in that moment, um, reveal or open up. Uh, but if your intuition is telling you that, then you're in, trust your in- instincts, trust your intuition. Um, and the more that you can be uh, supportive and non-judging, the more likely you're going to get someone to um, get the help they need, right? Because in that moment, you don't need to be right. judged. You just need help. And, and, and for that person out there, that, that man or, or woman um, that is you know, suffering, what, what would you say? That um, it feels like you're alone, and that is why um, – and that's – um, one of the indicators of how warped your thinking is at the moment, and that uh, you're not as alone as you as you think you might be, and that the it it feels very counterintuitive. It feels like that's not what you want to do. You'd rather you know hide or protect. Uh, but the best thing you can do is uh, speak to anyone, you know, someone in your circle of friends. Uh, go see medical help. Um, get a therapist. Go find your best friend. And it'll be the most vulnerable or the most difficult thing you might have ever done. It's harder than cliff jumping and, you know, all of those moments. But if you've ever done anything where you've pushed yourself to the edge and and went um, past your comfort zone and it worked out well for you, then trust your instinct that it can work well for you this time as well. But, and as somebody who's, you know, again, who's who's suffered from, from this, um, the only way of, of getting out of that darkness is shining a light on it, absolutely, and, and coming out, you know, coming open and, and having the discussions and talking about it. And, and um, your you your know. reading of William Styron has served you well. <laughs> <laughs> nice metaphor, <Yeah. laughs> more eloquent than me. Yeah, um, you know, and I'm just curious, what is your um, what are your thoughts on medication and and you know um, 
you know, the, the, some people believe that that's, that's not the thing to do. Some people believe it is. I, I personally, you know, took, took that medication and it saved my life, I think. Um, but I'm curious of your opinion. Well, the exact cause of mental illness isn't exactly known. There's much that's thought to be true, um, but it's not fact. And um, so there is a cohort of thinking, scientific thinking, that uh, depression is a medical condition or a chemical condition, and that um, the best way to treat it is with medication. So I take medication. I expect to be on medication for the rest of my life. Um, a, a, a backstory of that is my mom experienced um, severe mental illness, depression, and uh, she took medication that really left her in a bit of a stupor and uh, was very, she wasn't very comfortable with it, and twice she removed herself, self, you know, uh, stopped taking the medication, which and both can, times... Which can be very dangerous. Both times yeah. she had a relapse, a significant relapse, back in hospital, and um, I don't think my situation is as um, difficult as hers, or I, my condition isn't as, as severe as hers, but I don't want to find out what happens if I don't take the yeah. medication, so and, and I, I'm committed to it. Again, I'd, I'd agree with you there, and I think the medication is something that, and first first of all, I sh- we should say that we are by no means medical professionals. Right. We're, we're the farthest thing, thing from it, but um, that it is something that you do want to have a, a conversation with your doctor about. You don't want to, um, you know, you don't want to jump off these things without, you know, your doctor knowing about it, because um, to your point, things can go sideways. But also, um, there are different options on the market and things out there, and, and, and you do have to test in a way and try to figure out what works for your Definitely body. Definitely is, is an experiment. There, uh, There's, um, you know, several different um, strategies as far as medication and several different types of medication. And at the end of the day, it's basically an experiment. The doctor, you know, um, if someone is qualified to make a judgment about this, prescribe something to you, six weeks later, after a period of of, um, accommodation, you find out if it's working for you or not. And if it is, great. And if not, let's try. And so, you you know, people have experimented through several different types. Leonard Cohen has a song where he talks about the six or seven different, you know, the live (laughs) version of of, uh, Live in London, you know, where he's on on a bunch of different medications, <laughs> which, you know, is funny in the way that he did it. Um, but to the extent that what is known about depression, if, if someone thinks medication might be help, then, then um, give yourself the benefit of, of the best thinking and the best resources that are available. I'm just, I'm just thinking, you know, uh, coming from somebody who's uh, a teacher, a, a coach, and, and has had that, that background, um, do you think that depression and mental illness is something that we should be introducing into, uh, you know, education and, 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 and health uh, at, an, at an early age? Because I feel like, at least I, I don't remember it ever being discussed when I was in elementary school or, or even high school, and it just sort of has a tendency to hit you at, at those pivotal times in your life. Is this something that we should be introducing at an early age? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think it's... Um not quite the same, but um, uh, about the same as what's happening in Ontario with the amount of controversy that's occurring with um, the uh, initiative to do sex education in schools amongst elementary and uh, junior high schools. And there's some, you know, cohort of people that think it's best not to discuss um, sex and everything that that might involve and pornography, as a matter of fact, because, you know, best to avoid it. And 
But elephant in the room. Elephant in the room, exactly. Yeah. Do you think kids can't find it? Yeah. yeah. You know, do you think kids aren't experiencing depression? Right. Of course. Yeah. So, you know, hiding it or suppressing it is the very thing that leads to the problems we're talking about. So, um, you know, there's appropriate ways. You're not going to talk to a six-year-old in the same way as you might a 16-year-old, but there's ways that you can communicate with um, with everyone that um, gives them more power in the cir- in the situation, right? That uh, more power to make choices and better judgments. And um, and if you make it something that is repressed in some way, then all of us walk around with um, negative associations and conflict about it. And you know, I was talking about being stressed out as a 15 year old. How does that all? You know, where did yeah. that come from? Yeah. What was going on for me right, at right. that time that I might have it might have helped if I'd been able to discuss some of that with people? Mm. Yeah, very so, true. Um, as a general rule, this is almost a blanket one hundred percent rule. Naming the elephant is the best thing you can do. Mm. That's hmm. awesome. Um, just to kind of switch gears and move forward because um, we need to start wrapping it up soon. Um, you know, this this conversation has been pretty powerful. And this podcast is, is a, you know, focused towards masculinity and men. And, and I, you know, I really appreciate your insight because I think for a lot of our listeners, this, this is very valuable conversation. And I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, what, what do you think it means to be a man in our world today? And, you know, what's, what's the biggest challenge that they face or that we face uh, from your perception? And, and what's the best part? I don't know who said this, but one of the things that's great is the older you get, the more confidence that you have and the more you are capable of relying on your own judgment, on your own capabilities. And so, you know, we have an internal struggle about um, trying to figure it all out um, with a lot of conflict, a lot of um, paradoxes in our lives. And, And so we have this internal dialogue going on trying to figure it all out and we put that up against that external way that we show up in the world and the mask that we have Uh, and so I think the best thing you know we've been touching on this as a a bit of a theme in our conversation is to open up about that internal dialogue and one of the things that works for me that's been the best thing that I've done is a thing called affirmations and so our, our identity when I work with clients we talk about you know, all that stuff that's below the waterline, the iceberg. You know, the, the only thing we see of people is the top of the iceberg, the what they say and do, what drives behaviors, all that stuff below the iceberg. And amongst those things is our identity. And our identity, my definition, is the things we say to ourselves about ourselves when no one else is looking, the things we say to ourselves about ourselves. And so we often make up that stuff, right? You know, I'm a great golfer or I'm a terrible this. or um, And so it's often what we say with I am. And so rather than leaving that to random choice and circumstance, why don't we make a collection? I have 16 affirmations that define the best me I can be. Dr. Zeus, you know, today you're you. That's truer than true. There's no one alive that's you than you. And so my question for, for our listeners today is this. Do you have a written definition, written definition of the best you you can be? If you do, that's awesome. My experience is not many of us do. And so it's, if you don't have that written definition, then it's a little like um, getting on an airplane um, and you knew, a commercial airline, and you knew the pilot didn't have a navigation plan. Would you get on that airplane? 
Of course you wouldn't. You'd right. be crazy. You know, this airline pilot's going to take me to paradise, to Hawaii or something, and he has no plan of how to get there. And that's – if we don't have affirmations or a, a well-thought-out description of the best a man or the best person we can be, then we're living in our lives in a way that doesn't have a lot of uh, context. And so we all have values and we all, you know, subscribe to a certain way of thinking. But if, it's if it isn't articulated in a defined way, then uh, we're subject to the whims or the influences or whatever happens. And so the way affirmations work for me is I, I think about them daily. Ben Franklin had a 13 virtues in his life, uh, and every week of his life he would take one of the 13 uh, and make that his focus for that week. And he would uh, spend a few minutes kind of meditating or thinking about uh, that day and how well did he live out that value that day. And if he did well, he would feel good about it. And if he didn't, he gave himself a little, he had a little scorecard and he'd give himself a little asterisk or a little mark that, you know, to, to do better that day or the next day against that, that virtue that he had. Uh, he had 13 of them. So, and he did one a week, which meant that every 90 days, every three months, he'd rotate through them. Uh, at the end of his life, when he was 79, he, and he wrote these when he was 20. Um, at the end of his life, he said, you know, I didn't always live up to what I expected of myself. Uh, but I'm the better for having made the attempt. And so I think that's what, um, how it helps me is that I don't always live up to those standards. And sometimes I look at it and think, who is that guy? Um, but it's a little like my navigation plan, that it puts me back on course. It gets me back on track. Sometimes it's very powerful in that I feel good about it, and it's uh, very affirming. And um, uh, other times it's aspirational. It's something I'm striving or attempting to live to, but it's my navigation plan and um, so I don't know if that really answers your yeah, question Connor but it's a, a a kind of way of saying uh, if you want to be more confident um, about who you are um, about who you're striving to become what you stand for in the place um, write it down make make a list of your IMs and if anyone's interested there's lots of resources available um, that'll help you do that and of course that's part of what I do with with clients as well um, but start with getting more clear about who you want to be, how you want to show up in the world, and have that as your, let's call it, guiding light. So that's the end of my little sermon. No, here. That's, great. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's really good. Um, just to just to kind of just to kind of wrap it up, um, you know, what is what's one thing in the future that you're really looking forward to? Wow. You mean striving for vacations or uh, <laughs> next hole in one or just just anything that's that's exciting on the horizons for you that that maybe our you know maybe it's a speaking event that our listeners could maybe check you out at maybe it's uh, another podcast maybe it's a vacation that you're going on just just anything something that you're looking for Seahawks to. winning the Super Bowl again yeah <laughs> uh, well that'd be high on my list of uh, aspirations <laughs> yeah. for sure I didn't do well yesterday um, I am looking forward to the talk tonight. Um, speaking is my favorite thing to do these days, um, to get out and uh, share. Um, I, um, there, only one dimension of what I do in terms of speaking has to do with my personal story and all of that. I do a lot in, related to business and success and life and that kind of thing. And, and so um, if there's opportunity to speak, I'm all over it and love to do that. And so really a highlight for me this month is the opportunity to speak with your group tonight. Awesome, great. And what's uh, what are some of the best ways that, that our listeners can get a hold of you or learn more about you? Well, uh, W5 Coaching, 
Uh, w5, uh, the tieback is to the Socratic method. W is the, the Socrates, Socrates said the best way to teach is to have someone figure it out for themselves, and the best way to do that is to ask them questions that help them uncover the, their answer. And the five best questions start with who, what, when, where, why, right? So I'll start with the W, and so that's the the uh, little story behind W5 coaching. So there, you can find it on on the web, Twitter, Facebook. You know, it's um, W5 coaching. Just do a Google search. You'll find it. Great. Excellent. Um, John, thank you so much for, for being on the show today. I think... Um, you know what you what you shared and 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 the the, the depth and level that you shared it at is is something that I, th- I think is invaluable and hopefully uh, we we got a chance to touch some at least one person out there somebody out there and um, you know uh, for those that uh, that are familiar with uh, with this story or, or or familiar with this sort of scenario we'd love it if you could share this you know this this episode with you know with as many people as possible because i think it's to the point we we need to um you know we need to 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 talk about that elephant in the room and we need to um spread this message and and hopefully this is a good uh platform for doing so you know i'm I'm just if i can add one more thought one of the unexpected outcomes from the talk is the number of people have come out and felt able to talk to me about their circumstance their story it's a i'm i'm um every week amazed at people and their story and their um, desire to want to talk about it once they find an audience that they feel it's okay to talk with. So um, if there's anything that comes out of our talk today, if if people feel more open and willing to express, um, you know, it sounds like motherhood and granola, but it really is much more powerful than that. Absolutely. Um, but thanks so much again, John. For the listeners out there, if you want to listen to this podcast or, or, or more of our podcasts, you can go to mantalks.com. Uh, we've also got some great blog posts. Um, and we're also uh, really excited about our upcoming uh, one-day intensive event on November the 7th. Connor, why don't you kind of give the listeners a quick rundown on that? Yeah, so November 7th, uh, Vancouver Convention Center. Uh, we have got six uh, incredible people and incredible men coming to speak. Um, we've got the founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, Mr. Brian Scudamore. We've got the ex-captain of the Whitecaps, Jay Demerick, coming to speak. Um, we've got Philip McKernan, who is absolutely uh, crazy and incredible. He's spoken on stage with you know everybody from Richard Branson to the Dalai Lama. We've got Sachin Raha, which is uh, the founder of Warrior Sage. Uh, there's there's just so many. Um, <laughs> there's some some really great speakers. So uh, if you're looking to grow yourself, grow your business, um, grow your relationships, if you just want to hear some amazing people um, speak, but also teach, I think that's going to be the biggest difference from from our our monthly event. Is that in in this session, uh, these men are not only going to tell you their story, they are going to dive into how they've built their business how they've built their life and and help you do the same so we hope to see you there yeah tickets are on sale right now at the website at mantalks.com but if you want a chance to win two tickets to the events um, all you need to do is go on uh, you know your favorite social channel um, post a photo or maybe a quote about what you think it means to be an incredible um, man use the hashtag man it forward and while you're doing that, tag three of your friends that you think are epitome or, or epitomizing what uh, you know a modern man means today, and you could have a chance to win two tickets to our our event. Uh, we're very very excited about it, and hopefully you are too. Um, thanks so much for listening to the Man Talks podcast again today. Catch us next week for another inspiring conversation with an inspiring man.